you had friends over for breakfast and you were going to cook them a really nice omelette or something like that, you wouldn't take four good eggs and one rotten egg and then mix it together. <laughs> Michael would. <laughs> it's a way to get rid of the rotten egg. Eh? <laughs> But you wouldn't do that, would you? You wouldn't, take, you wouldn't take good eggs and then mix one rotten egg in with it and then hope that you would get away with that. It would taste terrible. It would be tainted. And that's what's happened to the gospel. You've got the good news of Jesus and yet it gets tainted with just this <clears throat> works, performance, religious thing that gets mixed in with it and then it gets presented to people as being acceptable. Yeah. And it tastes terrible. So what happens? To try and mask that flavour, people put a whole lot of other stuff on it to try and mask that rotten egg. But it doesn't last. It might, it might, you might get away with it for a moment, but in the end, you're left with this aftertaste in your mouth and you think, oh, there's just something wrong with that. And that's what religion does to the gospel. It's horrible. It just taints it. It just messes it up. I don't understand electricity, but I'm no fool. I'm not going to sit around in the dark <coughs> until I do. I don't understand the thermodynamics of the internal combustion engine and the hydraulics of an automatic transmission either, but I'm no fool. I'm not going to stay in one place until I do. You might not understand all the workings of a car, but you're going to use that car. The truth is that I don't understand a great deal of the things that are part of my everyday life. <coughs> Excuse me but I make them part of my life anyway. The same is true of salvation. No one will fully understand how God could become man, how he could die, how his death could be the basis for our forgiveness, how he could give you and me new life <clears throat> and all the other aspects of salvation. But only a fool would ignore such a great opportunity just because he didn't understand it. That's the sad thing about so many people, is they want to understand all the intricate details of something before they will believe. And the gospel is a matter of faith. You hear the good news, and you may not understand how could that really be possible. And that's why it's called the too good to be good news. Good, too good to be true good news. Because it just blows our mind. The good news of the gospel. And that's what we've been looking at <clears throat> over these last few weeks. And uh, we looked at, there was, there's nine things, and we haven't got through nine yet. But we'll get there. We've got, I don't know, how many did we get through so far? Four, is that all? And I'm going to try and finish today. Brought into the family of God. That is good news, Amen. No longer orphans, but brought into the family of God. I'm not going to repeat all this. Forgiven, how much? All our sin. All our sin. <clears throat> oh, I've got a bottle, but thanks. Okay.
There's a story um, that Martin Luther wrote that was commonly spoken about him. And uh, it was where the devil came to Martin Luther and uh, he, he began to accuse him of all of this, all this stuff and list a great big long list of sins, all the things that he had done wrong. And Martin Luther, he gets to the end and Martin Luther says, um, you didn't think very hard because there's more than that. So the devil piles on again and just increases the list. Just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on of all the things that Luther had done wrong, all of the wrong thoughts, all of the wrong things that he had spoken, wrong decisions, wrong attitudes of heart. And he gets to the end and Luther just says to him, that's fine. All of that is true. Now, right across all of it, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. That's the good news of the gospel. We have been forgiven of all sin and made righteous and holy. So we have been cleansed. Of all sin. Folk, that's the good news of the gospel. I wonder if we dare believe it. We dare believe it. Made righteous in God's eyes, just as if we had never, ever sinned. Imagine living a life where you are perfectly innocent every single day. And you are so convinced of that that you know that that's how God sees you. Perfectly innocent. One of those baffling things, I think, for all of us is, is that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you. Friend of mine, most of you know him, Ryan Rufus. He has a blog site and writes stuff. He put a thing up, I think, yesterday or the day before, um, just talking about the fact that, that for us as believers, and I said this last week, we have been made 100% perfect, holy, and righteous. That the righteousness that we stand in, the holiness that we stand in, is the holiness of God. Now what that means is that you are as holy as Jesus. And I said last week, most of us have a problem with that. And that is true. We struggle to really believe that truth. Because it just seems to be so mind-blowing. How is that possible? It's an, it, it almost seems like an arrogant statement to make. And yet we didn't make it. God did. Jesus declares it. It has been declared over you. That we have become the righteousness 
of God in Christ. Wow. I think our life would be just so much different if we actually grasped that. I actually replied to him and I said, it's, an, it's such a profound truth. It's an amazing truth. The sad thing is that 99% of people don't believe it. And that's 99% of Christians. Probably 99.9999% of people. Because I have brief moments where I believe it. But most of the time I struggle to really believe that truth. And yet we cannot deny the truth of the word of God. It's amazing. We've been given the gift of eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. That anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. That's the good news of the gospel. Eternal life. That when we die, when this physical body dies, that's not the end. We have something else to look forward to. You know, um, Jesus says we have, we have uh, been translated from death to life. That's, in human terms, we just think of, well, when your body gives up, that's when you die. You're alive, and then this gives up, and you die. And some people believe that that's all there is. And yet the Bible gives us a totally different perspective on that because the Bible says that before this dies, you're dead. <laughs> From God's perspective, until you meet Jesus, you're already dead. You don't have to wait for this to die. You're already dead. But when you find Jesus, you become alive. And so that even if you die, you're still alive. Completely different way of looking at things. That's the good news of the gospel. You're not earning it. You're not trying to earn eternal life. You're not earning forgiveness. You're not earning salvation. It comes as a gift as we simply believe in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is about believing. It's not about trying to earn stuff. All right. That's where we ended last week, I think. So here, number five. We have been set free from the bondage and control of sin. Now that Wednesday night, we did talk about the fact that what we believe needs to have, um, it needs to have some practical outworking. In other words, what we believe should change the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. And so, the way, so what you think will fashion your convictions. And your convictions will fashion your behavior. It'll change the way you live. 
And that's, that needs to be true for every single one of us. You know, the, 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 um, in the ancient world, you could go to temple, you could go, you know, as a pagan, you could go and you could offer your sacrifices, you could, you could, you could do your worship and obedience to whatever God that you happen to worship, and then you could walk out of that temple and you could live like an absolute blatant sinner and no one cared. Because it didn't make any difference. What, what or who you worshipped and whatever temple you went into didn't make a scrap of difference to the rest of your life. And that was the big difference that happened with Christianity. Because Christians had a conviction about what they believed. And what they believed made a difference in their life so that they began to live differently. And that was one of the hallmarks of Christianity. And that was one of the things that really set it apart from all of these other religions. Because they could see these people, hey, what you believe actually translates into the way that you live. And when you talk about the love that God has for you, we see that. You are confident people. You believe God loves you, but not only that, that love now begins to flow out of you and we can see the love you have for us even though we hate you. <laughs> and that's the kind of impact it had in the communities that they were around. You imagine, folk, you're living in Rome as a Christian. Imagine what it, what it would have been like to live in, in the most pagan city in the world and you're there as a believer, knowing that the whole Roman Empire wants to destroy you as a Christian. And you're living there, in that city. Imagine how you would feel. You might feel like that's what it's like to live in Perth. <laughs> I don't know. And yet they weren't afraid. They didn't hide. They didn't secret themselves away. They openly showed the love and the goodness of God because they were absolutely convinced of God's love for them. And then it began to actually flow out of their life and it changed the way that they lived. You know, there used to be a saying that was going around. People, people began to coin it, um, you know, I'm an undercover Christian. I'm an undercover Christian. I think that was just an excuse to say that you're, uh, you're a Sunday Christian, but you don't want anyone else to know during the week. <laughs> That's not the way that we've been called to live, amen? We've been set free from the bondage and control of sin. And that's where, what we were under. We were under the control of Satan. We were in the kingdom of darkness until Jesus came and rescued us. He took us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Folk, if sin is still controlling people, it's one of two things that's happening. Either one, they're not saved. They're either not saved or they are a Christian who has no revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Because the law of the Spirit of life. What is a law? 
A law is something that has to be obeyed. Right? A law is a principle. A law has authority. The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law, not just of death so that I have eternal life, but from the law of sin. And so it's one thing to have a theory, well, okay, God's forgiven me all my sin. It's another thing to be set free from the control of sin. Amen? How, how should we be living as born-again believers? Completely set free from the control of sin. How does it happen? By the power of the law of life. So when you live in that life, that life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happens? There's a power that comes into your life to say, devil, get lost. See, where is sin now? Is sin in here? No. Why? Because it was circumcised out of us. It was cut out of us. So where is sin? It's external to you, but it's trying to get back in. So what, is, what does the Bible say? Resist the devil. Who's bringing that sin? Who's trying, to convict, who's trying to tempt you? The devil. What are we to do? Resist him and he will. That's the power that you have now at your disposal. To resist him and say no. I'm not talking a religious gospel. I'm talking about the reality of the good news of the gospel that empowers us to say no to stuff that would influence our life, that would, that would, um, that would take away this, this perfect image of Jesus beginning to flow out of us. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the power to overcome sin doesn't, doesn't rest in people who don't believe in Jesus. They have no control. They have no power to resist at all. But we do. We have been given authority. Salvation, our belief in Jesus is what, um, and what he has done on our behalf opens the door into a newfound life. Evil habits and the pressures to conform to a falling moral society no longer have a hold over us. Jesus empowers us to say no. Amen? We have free access to God's presence. Now, Adam's sin alienated him and the whole human race from God's presence, from his tangible, manifest presence. And that's how Adam was created. He walked with God. He talked with God every single day, face to face. But sin, when we were infected by sin, you know, Adam was, Adam was um, ejected. He was exiled from the Garden of Eden, from the presence of God. And he lived devoid of that access to God's presence but when Jesus came he restored that to you and I see what was Adam ban banished from being able to eat the tree of life Jesus is that tree when you think about the tree of life in the garden of Eden what do you see do you just see a big tree 
like a big cedar tree or something. The tree of life is Jesus. And Adam always had access to that life. Until he sinned. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of grace. Aren't you glad it's a throne of grace? It's not a throne of works. It's not a throne where you've got to beg God, you've got to crawl in on your knees, you know, and if you did something wrong, off with your head. No, it's a throne of grace. Because that's what used to happen in ancient times. If you approached the king in the wrong way, off with your head. And the problem for, for, for so many of those people was they never knew what was the right way because the king would change his mind day to day. It's a throne of grace. Hebrews 9, uh, 10 verse 19 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This is the new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death for us. And every other religion requires you to qualify before you can come before God. You've got to do a whole lot of stuff. You know, in some, some circles, you've got to memorize a whole lot of stuff and you've got to stand before a priest and recite a whole lot of stuff before you're qualified to go the next step. Imagine how we would go. What if, what if the conditions that God set was, I want you to memorize the entire Bible, every verse, and if you can't remember it and then recite it from memory, sorry, there's no access to my presence. Imagine what that would be like. We'd all be finished. Or, we have, or, or perhaps we would have to come before God with the reversal of what Martin Luther had to do. Instead of a big long list of all your sins, you had to stand before God with a long list of all the things you've done right. According to God's standard. How many of us would have access? None of us would. None of us would. It's a bit like that egg thing. You know, you, you, you can't just take good eggs and then mix one bad egg in. It's like taking all the good things you think you've done. All you need is one bad thing. And it contaminates everything else. You can't stand before God and say, hey, look what I present to you. Trying to go before God with even our own good effort and works. You know, Romans 3 says that it's, well, Isaiah says, and it's repeated in Romans, all of that is like filthy rags. All your good effort is a waste of time. Total waste of time. Doesn't compare to the holiness of God. And that's why he makes you as holy as him. So that you can stand before him and have act. That's the throne of grace. This is what happened. This is the good news of the gospel. Your spirit has been made alive. 
Everything we've looked at so far, you've been forgiven, you've been brought into the family of God, you've uh, been cleansed, you've been made holy, you've been given eternal life, um, set free from the bondage of sin. All of those things are only possible because of the activity of the Holy Spirit. None of it's possible without Him. Without the Holy Spirit, all you have is dead religion. But with the Holy Spirit, you have life. Amen? Soon as we accept Jesus, He immediately sends the Holy Spirit to come and to regenerate our spirit that was dead to Him. Titus 3 and verse 4 and 5 says, When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And that's an ongoing work. He is continually breathing life into your spirit. And once your spirit has been made alive, it cannot die because it is connected intrinsically it is wrapped around the very spirit of Jesus in fact it says you, your spirit and his spirit are now one spirit you know there was a, a time uh, John chapter 3 you see this um, religious leader of the day Nicodemus he comes to Jesus and he says Jesus how are you doing all the things you're doing and what does, what does someone have to do to actually see heaven to see the reality of heaven and he said, Jesus says, you must be born again. And he can't understand. He says, well, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus explains to him, no, it's a rebirth of the spirit. Your spirit has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen with any other religion. And any spiritual connection, any spiritual experience that happens outside of Jesus is demonic. It's deceptive. It's leading people away from Jesus. You know, I read a thing the other day, shocked me. Um, it said, um, what was it, 87% of all newspapers, or whether you read them, in your hand or online, 87% have um, horoscopes in them, people reading the stars, or they have other columns that are written by witches. What is more shocking to me is that about 70% of Christians read them. I hope no one here does. Because I've come across many, many people who read them and then you say, why are you reading that? Oh, I just want to see what it says. It's harmless. Actually, it's not harmless. Because you're entertaining some demonic stuff and you don't know what happens behind the scenes. People wonder, why is this going hap happening in my life and why is that happening? And yet you question them a bit and there's a whole lot of stuff that they do during their day that's actually entertaining demons. Folk, don't be surprised when some of that stuff happens. Stay away from that stuff. Not, not being religious, not putting religious, 
I'm just giving you some godly wisdom. Some godly advice. The Bible says stay away from that stuff. And we need to. Our spirit was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to feed on. Allow him to activate and operate and work through our lives. Amen? Do, we, do you rely on the Holy Spirit every day? Benny Hinn wrote a book. Some people don't like him. I don't, I don't care about all of that stuff. But he wrote a book called um, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. Fantastic book. And, and I've made that part of my life, not, not so much the book, but that statement. So that as soon, because he used to say, the first thing he did, as soon as he woke up every morning, was to say, good morning, Holy Spirit. And I've, I've made that a practice, that no matter how I feel when I woke, wake up, and I'm not a morning person. You, some of you are, I'm not. <laughs> Don't come near me first thing in the morning. But I've made it a point to say, good morning, Holy Spirit, the moment I'm awake. I think it's a good practice to get into. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I don't have to pray, oh, please come, Holy Spirit. Please come, Holy Spirit. Because He's always with me. You know, if you want to pray a prayer like, come, Holy Spirit, pray this. Holy Spirit, would you just make me more aware of your presence? Amen? Because the Bible says he never leaves me nor forsakes me. And I go to prayer meetings with pastors and the constant repetitive prayer all the time is, please come, Holy Spirit. Now, understand what the heart is, but the theology behind it is flawed. It's not a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of, well, if we pray enough, God, you will come. Now, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. Now, help me to be more aware of your presence. Pray that every day, and I'll guarantee that you'll begin to have encounters with God where you are going to feel the atmosphere around you change. Pray it in your car. Pray it when you get up. Not begging God, thanking him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here with me. Now help me to become more aware of your presence. You can do that right now. Right now, Holy Spirit, make us more aware. Help us to be more aware of your presence. All right, let's try and finish this. We have the assurance of salvation. You know, when, when, when many people make a decision to say yes to Jesus, it's not always this big dramatic thing where they suddenly feel, you know, the, the, the ground shakes and the atmosphere is tingling with the presence. Of, that, that, that happens for some people, but for the majority of people, it actually doesn't happen like that. And yet, the Bible clearly tells us that if we simply believe, believe in Jesus and confess with our mouth, you 
are saved. It's not your feelings that count. It's the truth of what God declares. And the feelings are nice, but the problem is feelings come and go. And feelings change. If you base salvation, if you base your confidence, if you base eternal life, if you base your standing before God according to how you feel, man, you are going to live a roller coaster life of just up and down all the time. And you will never be able to cope with the pressures of life because your feelings are going to take a hit every single day. And that's not a way to live. Why are hospitals filled with people with, with mental agony and, and, and problems? Do you, know, do you know why most of that happens? It's because people are living according to their feelings, not according to truth. And they don't know how to deal with their feelings. And so their feelings are sending them on emotional highs and lows. Or, and they don't know how to regulate them and balance them in their life. And so they just lose control. They go crazy. Assurance comes when we trust God and what he has declared. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit comes and he testifies to our spirit. He speaks into our inner being and gives us the assurance that we are sons of God. God is our Father, Abba. There's an assurance you can know. People who doubt their salvation, man, they just need to get into the truth of the Word of God and not live by feelings, live by truth and allow... You know, you can dictate what controls your feelings. Don't think it's the circumstances around you. You can allow that to happen. But if you allow your feelings to be dictated by truth, you'll live a stable, productive life and you'll never doubt your salvation. Don't ever doubt a promise of God. Man, when I hear people doubting, you know, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if I'm saved or not. I just want to shake them. If you've received Jesus, that's it. That's what the Bible declares. Don't allow the devil to come and rob you. All right, last one. I'm skipping through these quick just so that we can finally finish this series. Otherwise, we're going to be on it forever. The good news of the gospel, you've been sealed for eternity. Sealed for all eternity. We weren't saved by our righteous acts and nor can we keep our salvation by our own righteousness. It's his He sealed us. He placed a seal upon us. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says this, For you also were included in Christ 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You are marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. There's a, with this COVID thing that's been going on, um, you know, every little prophet has been crawling out from under every stone and cracking the wood and, uh, you know, giving off their latest version of what's happening and included in all of that is all of this revived end time stuff. You know, I'm sure you've all heard it or read it, read it going on. It's, it's, it, every day there's something new, every day. And part of all of that, of course, is this thing of the mark of the beast, you know, 666, what's it going to be? And everyone's got all of their wild theories on what it is. I don't care. Simply, honestly, guys, I, I don't care. If you get that mark, you're going to be sealed for damnation. Well, guess what? I've been sealed with another mark. I've been sealed for all eternity. And that one is an indelible mark that can never be rubbed off. You know, these days they can remove tattoos. You know, tattoos are supposed to be permanent. Well, now they can actually remove them. But the seal of God can't be removed from you. <laughs> you know, in ancient times they would take a ring. Oh, can I get this up? Yeah. Actually, that's probably not a good example. You need one of those rings with a big thing on it. But they would have a, a seal. You know, like whether it was their coat of arms or just their insignia or whatever. And they would seal documents. And so they would pour, I'm sure you've all seen it, you know, they would take a letter, write it out, and then they would pour molten wax and then they would press that seal into. And that seal was often, sometimes it was a stamp, but often it was attached to a ring, right? And they would press that into the wax and seal it. And that was the official seal and they would do it when they closed the letter. And no one could open that letter un un unless they were authorised by the seal holder to open that letter. Well, you've been sealed. You know, Paul writes, he, he says, um, we are the letter. God has written on our hearts and he has folded us over and he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit for eternity. And only the seal holder has the right to actually break that seal. Who's the seal holder? Jesus. You read in Revelation. Who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seal, to open the scroll? And who? Only Jesus. Is he going to break you open and discard you? No. You have been sealed for all eternity. What does a ring represent? What happens when people get married? You get a ring. What is it? It represents eternity, eternal love. So you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and you have been married to Jesus. We are his bride. Look, get this. People still think that we are the fiancé. 
And I'll tell you why, because there's this confusion over what the, you know, we read about the, the, um, the, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. You know, there's going to come a day when we're going to have this great wedding feast, this banquet with Jesus. And people mistakenly look at that and think, that's going to be the day that we get married. And so they're living as a fiancé instead of understanding, no, we're already married. We are the bride. And we have been sealed. We have a wedding ring on. We're not waiting to be married. We have already been married. Amen? This, this, this goes to the core of, of, of the security we have in salvation. Because once you are married to Jesus, is he going to divorce you? <laughs> He's not going to divorce you. You're married to him. And what, so, so we're just in the process right now. You know, um, a, a wedding ceremony would take place, exchange of rings, all the vows get spoken. You know, I now pronounce you man and wife, husband and wife. And then what would happen? The, people at the, the guests at the wedding would go and get a coffee somewhere while they wait for the reception to take place, the feast, right, the celebratory feast to happen, while the couple goes off and has all the photographs taken. We're in that period. The day you got saved, you got married. There's coming a day when we're going to have this great wedding feast, the banquet with Jesus when we're all going to be together. You can enjoy that banquet now, by the way. <laughs> you can sneak up to the table and take a few little you know, pre-dinner morsels and begin to enjoy the food. Sneak up like kids do and, you know, scrape the icing off the cake. David says that. I mean, he sets a table, a banqueting table out before me. I can enjoy all of that right now in the presence of my enemies. Ha ha, devil. Wouldn't you like to be able to just do that? Look him in the face and say, ha, 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 ha. look at what God's got for me. Look at what I'm enjoying now. So we're just in the photograph stage. We're getting all the photos taken. Why? What are photographs for? For memories. So that you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I remember that time. I remember that time. I remember that time. Our life on earth now, folk, is, is a period where we are developing some memories. God, man, that was amazing, the way that you broke in in that time in my life. God, that was incredible when you showed me that grace, when you healed me here, when you lifted me up here, when you broke that fear off here. Amen? Because we're going to have the rest of eternity to tell stories about the goodness of God in, in our life. I, I don't want to despise that time. I want to enjoy it. Terrible when people haven't had wedding photos taken. Can't look back and, you know, those little things that remind you, man, that was so wonderful. 
when that happened. We should enjoy this time. Amen? See, that's the good news of the gospel. It's not, oh, God saved me, now get me off this planet. No, it's God, you saved me. Jesus, you came, you saved me. You poured your life into me. And now I'm going to enjoy this time on this planet. And I want to influence as many other people as I can with the good news of the gospel so they can enjoy you as well. I'm not looking for an escape day. Many people looking for a rapture, an escape day. Jesus, get us off this planet. Yeah, there's some horrible junk going on around. And as Paul says, man, I would much rather be there in your presence, Jesus. I want to be with you. But he says, for your sake, I'm staying here. And there's a world out there, folk, that needs Jesus. There's a world out there that needs a people whose life portrays what they believe. Do we believe in the good news of the gospel? I hope so. I hope so. How do you know you're saved? Haven't got time to go through these, but let me just give you three things here. One is a changed life. A changed life. I'm not talking about trying to become a religious goody two-shoes, but people should see that something has happened in our life. Number two, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So there's a confidence. You know the Holy Spirit is there with you, empowering you. And number three is the Bible does say that, 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 that we should be fruitful. Now, the moment you get saved, you've already become fruitful because you've received the fruit of his righteousness. All right? But we're not to stay as little babies. We're to mature and to grow. When we are led by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5 says there's fruit that begins to develop and begins to be seen in our life. One of those is patience. Ugh. But the love of God, kindness, gentleness, those kind of, they're, 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 that's how we live. Those things become evident in our life. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. That's Romans 1.17 from the New Living Translation. Let me just read this to you and we close. Um, Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying that he was so sure of his salvation that he could grab onto a cornstalk and swing out over the fires of hell, look into the face of the devil and sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. <laughs> when the storms of life, the winds of trouble and the sea of discomfort and emotional agony seem to overwhelm, we have to say with the songwriter, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? The good news. The too good to be true. Good news of the gospel. And that's what people need to hear. Not something that has a rotten egg in it. Something that is pure. Amen? Let's just close with having uh, communion together. So once you come...
Come and grab a, a piece of bread and a glass of wine or juice.